Welcome to Reframe Your Life, a podcast for women who want to live and lead their lives differently and explore topics relevant to all areas of their life. Hello Life Reflamers, Sandy and I are here today with a special guest. We have Ash Ahern joining us from Calgary today. Welcome Ashley. Hi, how are you guys? Very well, thank you. Thank you. I'm just going to read your bio, Ash, and then we'll launch straight into some questions because we're both very, very curious about having this conversation and seeing how (laughs) how it unfolds. Sure. So Ash Ahern is an international speaker, money mindset and fulfillment coach and chief expansionist at The Expansion Project. She shares her story as a struggling entrepreneur in the financial industry to becoming a successful business and life coach on stages in schools, churches, and business seminars, workshops, and conferences. Her message is one of faith, perseverance, and surrender. Today, she coaches women on how to start and grow online businesses and get control of their money story by tapping into their bliss, getting clarity in their vision, ditching the hustle, and embracing creative flow, feminine power, and self-care. It has been a passion of Ash to travel the world, connect with other cultures while giving back. So the Expansionist Project is the culmination of the creative bliss Ashley teaches to the women she serves. Ash and her childhood sweetheart, Jonathan, have three daughters and call Calgary, Canada home. So I was getting a little bit stuck on there on ditching the hustle and embracing my feminine power. I'm like, yeah, that's what I want. (laughs) I want to ditch the hustle. So let's launch into it. So um, Ash and I have connected and it's great that we're able to have you here today. Sandy and I have been talking about trying to have a a guest on who really has some financial expertise. So we're very excited to have you here today. In your bio, you mentioned you were a struggling entrepreneur in the financial industry. So before we get into what that means, just tell us how you started your career in the financial industry. Because when we look at your picture and we lay all these assumptions and judgments, (laughs) you do not look like someone who has a career in the financial industry. (laughs) It's so true. Those glasses. Yeah. I like. I think that's kind of what I was going for, Sandy. <laughs> um, honestly, it was a very intentional decision. But the reason why I did was because I actually studied music as a career. I went to university for six years, and I traveled all over the world as a musician first. <laughs> um, and that led me to be very broke. <laughs> My husband and I were very broke. Um, And I really honestly, I wanted to be able to continue supporting my husband's dream. He was very much more involved in the music scene than I was. I was trained as a professional musician, but he was really involved in more of the popular, um, you know, folk and rock and roll scene. And I really saw a potential for him to, you know, make it big. And we were just so broke for lack of funds. I mean, in the music industry, you can't really get anywhere unless you have money or sponsorships. So I thought to myself, you know, he's got a ton more talent than I do. I've sort of had my run. I'm done with the touring lifestyle and I'm ready to settle down and have a proper serious career. And so I went back um, and I did quite a bit of training and spent uh, quite a bit of money um, and time as well in reinvesting back in myself to learn everything that I needed to learn in an industry that I knew could pay me really well. So I I really sort of did my homework as to what I could get into without having to go back and do another four years of university. You go from music to finance. And did you always imagine that you would, that the financial kind of trajectory of your career would be where you are now? Or did you work for a bank or were you more in a corporate environment? Um, no, when I first started, I actually was brought on by a small proprietary company and they actually had a a huge hand in a lot of the training that I did. Um, and essentially I was being trained as an independent broker other than the fact that I couldn't actually broker. I was very limited in what I could offer my clients because I belonged to a privately owned company. So then two years into that, I really started to feel Um, closed inside of a box where I couldn't actually offer some of the solutions that I wanted to offer to certain clients. So I decided to step away from that. And in doing so, 
the financial industry is fairly complicated, at least it is in Canada. You can't just walk away from a company and bring your clients with you. There's a lot of red tape and you know, you sign a lot of documentation and you know, they tell you that you own your own book of clients, but you really don't. <laughs> so I actually had to be non-active in the industry for two years before I could relaunch again and be independent. So I knew the risk that I was taking and I had to say goodbye to my clients and I took my two years and actually had a baby in between. So it worked out really well. I, I kept up my, my, um, my, my credit hours in terms of my education for those two years waited that period of time out and then relaunched as an independent broker after that. So I read through your website and I'm very curious about your story because you know you mentioned in there that you kind of were doing everything right. You had it all together mm-hmm. and then something happened and you lost it. Like you you just surprised mm-hmm. it sounded like it was surprising to you because you thought you were doing all of the right things. So mm-hmm. can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, this is probably the most pivotal and important part of my story because one of the things that I really believed in as an advisor was practice what you preach. And so I would never tell somebody to do something with their finances that I wasn't personally doing and believing in myself. And so I had all of the strategies that I would teach my clients in place for myself. And yet when I found myself struggling in my business as an entrepreneur and not really making the cash flow, it didn't seem to matter that I had all these other things in place. We still ended up having a crash and burn scenario. And it, what it did was it really, it took me out of the game because I said to my husband, how can I legitimately sit down with a family and talk about protecting them in their futures, but knowing that I'm not actually doing that because cash flow is key. You need cash flow for any of these strategies to work. So if your cash flow dries up and disappears, you're still screwed over. Right. And so we had had sort of this breakdown to breakthrough moment where we realized that I needed, we needed to make a change in terms of our cash flow in order for any of it to work. And what happened was because I had lost all confidence in my ability to really give good advice to people, I stopped reaching out to new clients, which actually perpetuated the, the cash flow problem, of course. Mm-hmm. Right. And I just, I spiraled down into a depression and, um, I basically wasn't practicing in my business for almost nine months. I wasn't earning income. We were in the worst financial situation we'd ever been in. And it just, it really took its toll on me and my marriage. Our marriage was sucking. We were not doing well on that end of things either. You know, whenever there's pressure financially in a relationship, it puts pressure everywhere, you know? So, um, I'm, I look back on it as an experience that needed to happen in order for me to be where I am today. So I'm grateful for it. But in the moment, you just, you're shaking your head going, how did this happen? (laughs) Right? Yeah, definitely. And so what specific things did you do to try and get yourself out of that situation? The first thing that I had to do, honestly, was just take a step back and, and look for somebody who, like, look for a mentor, somebody who had more experience than me who had overcome their own adversity and could offer me some tangible advice because the people that I had been working with, none of them had really experienced what I was going through. And so it was difficult to be in a circle of people that, you know, they were, they were all highly successful in their financial careers and didn't really relate to me. So I knew I needed to expose myself to a higher level of thinkers and doers and, um, I also, you know, I also had to be willing to listen and take action on what this person was going to tell me too. I couldn't just hope they were going to fix it for me, right? So I, I ended up taking the advice of a, a new mentor in my life who said, you just need a new circle. You need to get out of who you're hanging out with and you need to um, surround yourself with people that are doing more. And so I actually scrimped and scraped and borrowed from a few people to go to a live event. And that changed absolutely everything for me. Wow. Awesome. That is so in line with what we talk about on our podcast. We actually did an episode (laughs) on the kind of people that you need in your life. And that's something that we feel, you know, for women who are reframing their lives, we really need to be with people who are challenging us and who are um, 
cheerleading and just helping us to really succeed. So yeah. I, that just that's great. Yeah, yeah. So on the couples piece, I mean, you you mentioned it. It started becoming a challenge in your marriage. Sometimes the financial incompatibility, I guess, yeah, mm-hmm. I would say, between a couple will be an issue. How did you um, support people through that process? If- oh, absolutely, all the time. I would have to say probably eighty percent of the time because I would sit with. A, I would sit with. There's always a spender and a saver. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and in worst scenarios, you get two spenders together, and um, that's always fun. (laughs) Um, And every once in a while, you get the couples that are both savers, and actually, I have a few clients still to this day where both of them are savers, and it's fantastic to see because they're on the same page, but that's not typical. Um, Typical, we do have more what I would call masculine and feminine money managers. Right. Right, um, and that's not necessarily means uh, a man and a woman. The man is not necessarily masculine with the money, and the woman is not necessarily feminine. And what I mean by that is um, the way that uh, money can be such a control issue, depending on how you were raised. So you could, uh, for example, you could be the type of person that needs to have one hundred percent control of the money, and that might have been because you came from a background where there wasn't a lot. And so now you're you're desperate and you kind of cling on to that control because if you, as a child, you don't have control of your family's finances and if you felt lack as a child, um, you felt very out of control. And so as an adult, you tend to swing the other way. Um, and that person would generally have more of a masculine energy around their money because there's a desperate need to control it. And then there's a the feminine person who um, they might have always been um, taken care of in growing up surrounding their money and never had any um, real qualms or issues. Like some of my friends growing up had, you know, wealthy families and they didn't want for anything. They were always taken care of and and spoiled to a degree. And I find those people generally have such an aloof sense of the, how money operates in the world that they don't care as much. And they know that they'll always be taken care of. They know that there's always money. It's just not a concern or care they have all the time. And those people can tend to be spenders as well. So when you get that masculine and feminine together, that's sometimes where a lot of conflict comes together because one is massively in control and the other one just knows that things will take care of itself. And so they tend to be spenders and make that other person, the more masculine, crazy. (laughs) It sounds a little passive aggressive almost. (laughs) <laughs> yeah a little bit <laughs> it's it's an interesting one i know in my marriage i so i do all the day-to-day operational you know check receipts monitor everything but my husband did all the taxes and then when it comes to investments i just want to put my head in the sand yeah. it's like i don't want to know i don't understand it and I mean, it's certainly not black and white. It doesn't mean that any one person is always masculine and anyone is always feminine. And we understand that there's sort of a, a play by play that can happen. And, and certainly in your situation, you know, it sounds like that you have somewhat of a balance happening. So that's good. And, and to be able to exchange those roles too and to be able to take turns is really important. And like sort of let go of the reins and, and involve yourselves is probably one of the biggest things um, that I would recommend for people is that. It, when it comes to tax time or it comes to, you know, looking at the investments or, or whatever, to have that other person engaged and informed about what's going on and offer them an opinion or allow them to ask questions is really, really important. You know, I think you've just given a really good tip there. I know some of my friends who are trying to help their parents, you know, deal with their aging parents, deal mm-hmm. with finances and things. Mm-hmm. And it, it was of the age or the era where one would do it all, whether it be male or female, and, and, and the other just wouldn't even ask any questions or be involved. Yeah, I have a question around that, that just when um, Joanne was talking, I was thinking about that. So what I see with people is, and not to kind of get too locked into talking about couples and finances, but I see that in some couples, they like sh- they, everything's joint, joint accounts, everything's in both names. And yeah. then in other re- friends, their relationships, they keep it very separate. So one person pays for this and the other person pays for that. And, and their finances are not 
blended together mm-hmm. very much at all. And I'm, I, what, is, what are your thoughts on that? Like if you were working with a couple or somebody who was just sort of starting a, um, to, you know, at whatever stage of life they're at, you know, a new relationship or, you know, partnership of some sort, what would you say in terms of finances? Is it a good idea to keep them separate? Oh, um, yeah I could probably go fairly I could talk a lot about that but essentially if I had to make a very very simple answer um I'm not the type of person that thinks that everybody should do everything together like my husband and I have joint freaking everything and it's just because it simplifies everything for us um and there's other couples that do that too and in fact pretty much Probably about 70% of the couples that I was serving would just do everything joint, and that was what worked for them. And then I, there's a whole other community of people that I serve that um, they just prefer to keep things separately, and that's about sort of their comfort level and what they've agreed on early on in their relationship. And sometimes it does change and morph, um, and other times it's just something that they've always done, and they haven't really challenged it or looked at why they do it that way. They just – people don't really love change, so um, – they would start doing it a certain way and just kind of keep it that way. And I don't think there's any right or wrong way to handle it as long as it's working and it's not a source of constant arguing or, you know, creating conflict between the two. If it works for them, then it works for them and that's totally okay. Mm, that's, that's awesome. One of our questions was, we, I mean, we've just been touching a little bit on it. So is what are some of the themes or issues that women have with money that you, that you've identified in your, in your business? Oh, this This is is a good good one. Um, (laughs) This is, I'm very passionate about this, ladies, because um, it took me a long time to discover this. It was like really 10 years into my business before I realized what some of the really major recurring themes are. Because as women, we care a whole awful lot about what other people think. And I think where this comes from is is the ego. You know, our ego can really control our thoughts and emotions about wealth because it satisfies that fleshly the desire to just have a lot of money. Yeah. Right. And we've been brought up in a society that puts a lot of emphasis on status. Mm. And although shifts are, are starting to happen, I do see them. I, there's still so much work to do in the world. And what the root of all this is what well, I don't want to say root yet. The, the main theme would be women feeling unworthy mm-hmm. because we're always striving for that next thing we're always looking for that next level of approval and this is something that has only been a recent discovery for me in my coaching but if we were to peel the layers you know peel down the layers of unworthiness to find out what's really sitting inside of it um that is pride and most women that i tell that to their first reaction is well that's impossible oh it seems it it seems how can you go from feeling unworthy to being proud right like that connection to me but but if you if you actually if you were to peel it all the layers away pride is what keeps us um you know maintaining a certain standard of expectation a certain like how where we hold our standards roots in pride yeah Mm -hmm. right and so if we feel that we're not meeting that standard we feel unworthy so really deep down it's a pride issue and every single woman I coach, this is the, where we get to like 95% of the time. And it's not because it's so subconscious, it's so buried that we're even to hear it for the first few times, we're still fighting it. We're not acknowledging it. We don't want to because to admit that it's a pride issue, it, it hurts. It hurts the ego. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. we're pointing our finger at the ego saying this was you all along. You dirty rotter. You know? <laughs> um, and so, uh, but the more I work with women and the more I help them through this and realize this isn't your fault. Like you didn't choose to be prideful. That's not it at all. Right. It's that underlying subconscious, you know, ego driven thing that creates the set of standards that we feel we're not upholding, you know, 90% of the time. And so we feel unworthy. We don't feel that we deserve it. Mm. You know, so having issues with money and feeling like 
we have a cap on how much we can earn at the root of all of it deep, deep down. It's just about what standard we're upholding for ourselves and, and being able to conquer that feeling of unworthiness by changing how we feel about that proud proudness. And yeah. So, so you're encouraging people or women to reframe that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah we need to. So how does somebody do that? Do you have secrets? <laughs> I, I, they're not even secrets. I would happily, you know, gladly give away all of my, <laughs> all of my strategies because it's not about, for me, it's not about making money, right? It's about changing the world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I'm, I feel that my role here on this planet is to do just that. And so I do have some tips and strategies that people can use to try to reframe, you know, where they're at with their relationship with money and the first thing that I would, if you want, I mean, I could, it's, it's not an extensive, um, it doesn't have to take a lot of time, but I could sort of lead you through a few minutes of what that looks like if you're interested. Cool. Oh, I think that would be fantastic. Yeah, and, and while we're, t- before we get into that, we will put links for our listeners to, to your website as well. So if they need, you know, people feel like they want to have a deeper conversation with you, they can certainly reach out to you. Mm. Absolutely. I'd be happy to. Um, so the one thing that I usually do, and it's funny because of my musical background, I usually incorporate music with my exercises just to help you feel um, really calm and at ease with this whole thing. Because when we start talking about money, because the issue of it is, um, you know, we feel things like unworthiness and shame around our money, we tend to clam up a little bit. So if you're feeling uncomfortable at any point, you don't have to answer. <laughs> Um, but where I generally start is asking you to close your eyes and try to visualize what you see when you think of your money. And there's no right or wrong answers. Mm. Hmm. So, you know, some people, they see jar of money. Some people picture their bank balance, you know, they're on a digital screen. Some people see vault doors at a bank. Some people see it in their pocket. What do you think you're seeing? I was thinking empty. <laughs> so, what were you seeing? I was thinking of a garden, like money growing. But I was thinking I need to be planting some seeds to grow to some, grow money. some <laughs> money. You know what? I've heard money trees and things like that before. That's not new and that's actually pretty awesome. Um, because you know that um, if, if it can grow on trees, then all you need to do is plant more seeds and put some water and sunlight on it, and you can grow some more, right? Mm, yeah. So that's powerful in itself. Um, Joanne, you were saying you just saw empty space? I just thought, yeah, I was like, yeah, just nothing really popped up straight away. And then you okay. started talking, and I was like, oh, yeah, okay, so maybe not a money jar because I hardly use cash at all. Mm-hmm. It, it would be my app, you know, my, my TV app on my phone checking my bank balance. Okay, that's and that's really common, honestly, because we've gotten so detached from the cash. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and that's actually a representation of what your relationship is with money. For both of you, your visualizations tell me a lot about how you perceive your relationship with money. So, Joanne, because you, um, you picture a digital balance, you're actually detached from the cash. Yeah. So a, a, a mantra that I used to give people is that, well, maybe it's not a mantra per se, but um, when you're using plastic, let's say, when you're going to use a debit card or credit card to make a purchase, the card is in control of you because you actually don't know the 100% what the balance is on the other side of that card. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're holding cash and you can see how much is in your wallet, you're in control of how much you spend because yeah. you can see it. Yeah. You know what, I just have to say, I, I want to keep going, but um, I, I went to Havana a few weeks ago with my husband, and yeah. we, we were advised by someone who's been, like their, their banking system and getting money out of the hole in the wall, I call it, you know, the, the machine, isn't um, as popular, so take as much cash as you think you'll need. The amount mm-hmm. of stress that that caused me to try and work out how much actual cash I will need for five days like literally nearly drove me insane. Yeah, that's and that's probably a good indicator that you should probably be doing that more. Right. Because because they the restaurants don't accept credit card. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so they said, you'll hardly ever find anywhere to accept credit card and you need cash. Yeah, okay. Wow. That's... Uh... Now, in the end... Careful. Yeah. Very, and, and we went there and the lineups for everything in Havana was just phenomenal. So you had to line up for the bank. But our bank near us had a, a, a hole in the wall thing and our card worked in it. So yeah. we used that. So although I took all the cash I thought I needed for five days, we hardly actually ended up... So we still went for... <laughs> the hole in the wall rather than lining up to transfer our cash from Canadian to that's that was a good exercise for you wow. I'm glad you guys had to go through that yeah thank Definitely. you and no problem <laughs> what about Sandy's vision <laughs> I want to know what's making her tick I'm, I'm really enjoying um, Sandy's vision I think there's some power to that too um, what I usually do is I take the visualizations and I guide you guys through a process of picking it apart and asking yourself, why do I think I'm seeing my money this way? Right. You know, what is the, like, why would it come to me as a garden? Why, or why would it come to me as a tree? Why would I think that it grows on trees? Right? Yeah. Um, and understanding, like, what kind of emotions come out of that? Right. So if, if you're feeling positive emotions about money growing on trees and you see the opportunity of that, then that's incredible. Like you're on the right path. Yeah. Um, but most people don't. I would say 80 percent of the people that I work with don't tend to have positive um, emotions concerning the visualization that comes up. Right. Oh, no. And I'm a lousy gardener. So <laughs> well, there is it. There it is right there. We just got to <laughs> I was like, um, why am I seeing a garden? I kill everything in the oh. garden. <laughs> okay, well, then that's going to lead us down a different path. Awesome. Wow. That's yeah. a, great, yeah. a great way to go into um, understanding someone's mindset around their finances. Thank you. That was really That's really, that's really just the first step in probably a five-step process that I would lead clients through. Um, because, you know figuring out how you visualize your money and how you sort of perceive that relationship is just the first step. And then we acknowledge where it comes from. Um, we try to tap into where that might have come from. Usually it's childhood issues. Yeah. And then we really try to reframe down at that level. So um, it, although the first couple steps seem fun, it can get tough. You know, when you do inner work and you challenge um, that ego inside of you, on what it's trying to guide you to do. <laughs> yeah. um, and then acknowledging that it's, um, you know, that it has control over you. And then being able to um, practice some things like a lot of things that I do with my clients is I get them to write letters to their egos. <laughs> you know, just declaring, you know what, you've, you've been in control up to this point. Now it's my turn. You know, I'm, I'm taking the wheel here. You, you can take the back seat and I'm in charge. And it can be very liberating. To, yeah. to make that change and just acknowledge to yourself that there's a shift that's going to happen and then you'll be surprised with the opportunities that come to you once you've done that, right? It's, you totally manifest new new experiences and new opportunities that way. Oh, definitely. I think people have a lot of shame around finances, you know? I, I think that um, everybody, and I've talked to people who are financial planners and especially in the area that I live in, which tends to be at least on the external it looks like everybody is doing very well financially and mm -hmm. they've said the reality is that so many people are mortgaged to as high as they can be and they're just living paycheck to paycheck and mm -hmm. I think it just creates a lot of shame for people and it it keeps us from talking about money and I know when Joanne yeah. and I were doing our podcast list of things we wanted to talk about in my mind, I thought, let's not talk about money. And, I didn't want to either. No, and let, and sex. Like, let's not talk about those two things. Because everybody's Oh, man, those are the two best topics. Yeah. <laughs> but I think you're right. And maybe that's, that goes back to the pride thing. Yes. Right? We, we have to show that we have this great house and this car and these clothes and I don't know yeah it's all there's so much image and there's so much that <sighs> we we want to present to people something that's that's not true about who we really are mm -hmm. And, and I think um, what you're saying, Sandy, is, is so poignant for today. And I don't know if either of you have seen the documentary Minimalism. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we've seen um, 
But it really can be very powerful. And I've, I've assigned it as homework before to clients because um, when you when you liberate yourself from having to prove yourself and trying to live, you know, for other people, work hard because um, you know you feel you need to to uphold some sort of reputation that nobody actually cares about. You know, when you can let all of that crap go and start really truly living for yourself and not worrying about what everybody else thinks, your whole life changes because that's what happened to me. And that's, you know, the people in that documentary and when they decided to, you know, go, you know, move out of their big fancy homes into like a tiny home, let's say, mm -hmm. they are the ha some of the happiest people in the world. Yeah. Well, my husband and I did that about three years ago. We moved out of a a um, community that, you know, larger home, more suburban, and we moved into a, more of a gentrifying neighborhood and a smaller cool. house. And yeah, we had to definitely work through some of that, but we did it largely for financial reasons because we didn't want to be so tied to a mortgage. And we knew if we moved, we'd be in a much better place. And, you know, it has been there have been liberating things about it, but there have been things I've had to work through around how it looks mm. and, mm -hmm. and it's, but it's been really good for me. And I, I think we, um, we're glad we did it. And how it looks, you mean all the judgment and assessment, oh, yes. that assumptions that are coming from yeah other people. We did interview Courtney a few weeks ago and just the, the liberation that she shared is yeah. it's got my husband and I just thinking, okay, Courtney oh, Carver, yeah. she was in the minimalist documentary and she was, yeah. uh, um, we interviewed her on our show. So yeah, I've done the 333 three, three with, um, some of my, um, three, 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 uh, with some of my, um, clients just because that's what they needed. <laughs> yeah. Joanne and I are both doing it right now. Well, oh, okay, cool. Sandy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, three, Three, a hundred, maybe? No. <laughs> Whatever. We're, we are, for three months, being much more intentional yeah. about buying three, clothes. Exactly. For three months, I'm not buying any, for yeah. sure. And then when I change my wardrobe over, it'll be... Yeah. Yeah. Interesting I think it's process. great. Anyway, we, we digress. <laughs> so in your bio and also on your website, you do... You do work with churches and schools, actually. So this may, may kind of link in and cross over. But yeah, I wonder if you can tell us about the connection between money and spirit. Oh, this is something I love talking about because there's this common belief out there that you can't be spiritual and rich at the same time. Mm -hmm. And and I have been not I don't want to say fighting because it's not really a fight really. Um, but I feel that that's been a huge part about why I do what I do is because I want to um, help shift our society in 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 what they think richness is, right? Because Firstly, richness has very little to do with money. Mm -hmm. And that's just a, a misconception that most people have. They just think that to be rich means that you have a lot of money and that you have a lot of material wealth. But I'm very rich in relationships. I'm rich in provision. I'm rich in experiences. You know, and I'm rich in possessions too. I have more than I need. Right? So I'm very rich already. Whether or not I have a million dollars in the bank is another question. <laughs> right? But I am rich already. Um, and the second thing that I would say is that um, the idea of having to shed all your worldly possessions and giving all your wealth away to, you know, um, just charities and like things like that in order to be spiritual is just such a huge misrepresentation. Um, and largely it comes from an old story from the Bible where this wealthy ruler comes and he asks Jesus, how do I have eternal life? And Jesus says, sell all of your property and give all your money to the poor. And so people have really latched onto that story because they're like, oh, well, in order for me to have eternal life, in order for me to get into heaven, I better not be rich. Mm -hmm. Right? So, but what they, they've taken, they've taken that story out of context because Jesus told that wealthy ruler that because that's what that person needed to hear. He knew that he was attached to the wealth, right? And so he deliberately, you know, said, that's what you need to do. Um, and it's been argued about for centuries. And I would actually recommend a really cool book. Um, it's called How to Be Rich by Andy Stanley. And the first time I read this book, my eyes were just opened to a whole new idea of how I can still be incredibly spiritual and wealthy at the same time. 
um, and how you know I don't need to build up this massive amount of money in order to um, sort of reach an elevated status of what I think richness is or what other people richness thinks richness is. Um, and when we are able to shed all of the, again, getting rid of all of those perceptions and misconceptions about status and pride and all of that and realize that, you know, I am here to make a difference on this planet and whether I do that by earning a lot of money or I do that by earning a little, it's okay either way. There's safety to know that regardless of how much money you make, if you feel that you're contributing to the world, whether that be through money or your time, then either of those ways for me is the fulfillment factor, mm-hmm. you know, and that, that feels my spirit like crazy. So, yeah. And I think that, you know, you can have, you can be generous and not have a lot, or you can be, have a lot and not be very generous. Like it really is so much around mindset. It does. Yeah. And what you value and how you were raised. There's so many factors, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Well, I appreciate that a lot. You know, I think, you know, there's that other saying too, you know, that money is the root of all evil that people, I think, also have. 100% for sure. Understood what, you know, another thing I think that's probably taken out of context. Mm -hmm. I actually have an entire talk that I do that's called money's not the root of all evil. (laughs) And I mean, it's very controversial in the church circles, which is why I love talking about it at church. (laughs) Oh my God, I bet you wear your purple lipstick and all. (laughs) I sure do. (laughs) That's great. Yeah, breaking paradigms all over the place. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Okay, so let's talk about different stages of life. And how people should think as they age. Um, I remember, so I, very early in my career, I actually worked for a financial planner. Wow. Yeah, I was in my 20s. And Whoa. All, and he, I mean, he was trying to shove too many uh, portfolios down my down my brain. He's like, you got to start now. you got to start now. If you don't start now, you won't be able to retire. I would be curious to how you work with people at different stages of life. Is it is it too late to ever seek to change your money mindset or extra seek some extra advice? She's looking at me when she says that. Oh, no. <laughs> no. She goes, well, my husband is, you know, we're talking retirement. You know, he's 62. I'm still in my 50s, but he's... <laughs> And so we're at that stage where a lot of our yeah. um, friends and, you know, you start thinking yeah. once you hit 60, like, and, mm-hmm. you know, and now I think there's a lot of discussion around this because people are looking at, well, do I have enough money to live for yeah. 30 years exactly. in the exactly. bank, you know, yeah. and how many people do? Yeah. But, you know, most people spend more time planning for vacation than they do their financial futures. Yes. Oh, that's a good one. Yes, thank you. Oh, man. They do. They'll spend weeks planning their itinerary for a five-day excursion to Alaska. Oh, but they yeah. won't spend that amount of time worrying about their future. And I think it, some of it comes from the whole YOLO mentality. You know, you're only going to live once. You're only going to have, you know, this, live for today. You know, don't worry about the rest of it. Just, you know, and, um, you know, create memories. Yeah. <laughs> the, the thought. And, you know, to a certain extent, I, I see where they're coming from. I don't want to, I don't want to stash away every penny that I earn, um, and not live for today because gosh, what kind of a life is that? You know, I don't have a career or work hard at something just so that I, you know, I can stash it all and and make sure just my children receive the benefits of that. And I just slaved away and was unhappy my whole life. Right. So I think. Mm -hmm. There's something to be said about the mentality, but I think it gets taken a, a bit too far. Mm. Um, and certainly, Joanne, had I been in my early 20s and had somebody um, tell me, you know, to save a certain amount of money and get investing, and that would have been overwhelming for me. Mm. Um, but I was very blessed to be involved in the financial industry at the ripe young age of 22. Mm-hmm. And because of that, um, I'm just incredibly blessed because for for a fairly small monthly commitment, my husband and I and our three children are completely set up for our futures. And it didn't take a lot of time to find out. It was maybe a couple weeks of planning. Um, but if I add up, you know, our future, just based on like, even when we were at our brokest broke, you know, broker than broke, broke is a joke, whatever you want to call it. 
um, level in our lives, it was because we had had these savings plans implemented from day one and they would automatically come out of our bank accounts, boom, every month, every month, every month. And so we had no choice in the matter. <laughs> I made it so that we couldn't touch it. It's very hard to get at it. It's automatic. So I didn't need to be disciplined. It would just happen. Um, and between, like, because my three children each have their own, um, like, mini portfolios, and then my husband and I each have one, um, and our children are set up to have, at minimum, um, within their retirement age, between 3 and $5 million each. And we only invest $55 a month per child to achieve that because they we started it so early. So there's a high, huge, massive cost in waiting to implement a financial plan. Yeah, Huge. Because if you don't start investing um, at a young age, you end up having to play catch up. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and you're so like when I was in my 20s, it just seems so far away, right? Now, of course, now in my 40s, I'm like, gosh, darn, you know, if I'd continued that. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And I did. I had a nice little savings plan and then I went to university as a mature age. So I just took it all out mm-hmm. to pay all, for all my university fees straight up, right? Mm-hmm. So so we kind of go, I go, my husband and I go in these phases. Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll save and then we want to like move or do something and then we just kind of, yeah. But uh, I, I totally get where you're coming from now in terms of in your 20s. But okay, so we're playing catch up. Mm. Yeah, um, you can find yourself in a place where you're trying to play catch up because um, when you're young, you can take advantage of compounding interest in your favor. Yeah. When you're older, compounding interest is starting to act against you. Yeah. So it really is important, and I would hope that any of our young listeners out there would really, really take my advice and, and heed this in the best possible way to take some action, even if it's $25 a month right now, yeah. put it. Put it into a product that you can't get access to. You know, make it so it's incredibly difficult. One of the things that I recommend for people is to buy annuities. Right. Because you can't just go cash out an annuity for no good reason. Like, you have to. You buy. It's like self-funding your pension, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you buy a product that funds for you at whatever age you choose. Maybe it's 55 or 60 or whatever. And you have a monthly contribution and it has to happen. Right. And, and then that way it's stuck there and there's nothing you can do. <laughs> and that's the best possible thing you can do for yourself. And I'm telling you, you will thank yourself later. I know it sucks right now, but you will thank yourself later. Um, but in terms of the mindset, you know, where you could think of it as and, and in terms of age, I don't think that there's ever, ever, never a stage where it's too late for you to work on your money mindset. Yeah. Because. I think each time you step into a new level, each time you un- uncover a new layer, there's always going to be a new challenge and new things to learn. And the best things that we can do as people that are, you know, a little bit more wise and experienced than those younger than us is to, rather than trying to teach with words and put out educational packets and, and any of that, is to maybe just be that example for them. Right? Because there's a lot of information out there that kids will go to and look for if they want it, but it's not going to be nearly as impactful as seeing it happen around them and us demonstrating to our children or to our, our communities um, you know, what healthy money practices are and being active in volunteerism and being generous and, and involving our youth in being you know, in the communities. Involving the youth is just paramount to that entire you know, that, that whole, um, mindset shift. If we want to create a new generation of, um, healthy money mindset people, mm-hmm. <laughs> we yeah. have to start with us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. We can't, we can't search outward of ourselves and try to make changes by, you know, sitting kids down in the classroom and teaching them budgeting. It's not yeah. going to happen like that. Right. <laughs> you know, that's, yeah. that's so. really helpful. I, um, I have a, a daughter I'm going to direct to your website because she just has two little kids. She's in her 20s, and I think, you know, it'd be good for her to start. Um, there's also something to be said um, about the words that we use, too. Um, I don't know how familiar you guys are with neuro-linguistic programming, but the words that we use are incredibly powerful. So when we're dealing with our children, rather than saying things like, often our children will ask us for things that are completely ridiculous, and of course we don't want to spend the money on, right? Mm. Telling them that we can't afford it is the worst thing you can say. 
Right. Right. Because, because you're, you're teaching, teaching them that, that there's not enough. They're missing out. Yeah. 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 Um, when, when you, you say, say things like, like I'm, I'm sorry, sorry, honey, that's not a priority purchase for us right now. Mm. Because remember, we want to go to Disneyland in November. Yeah. Right. Remember, we want to go do this. Remember, we're going on a vacation in two months. Remember, whatever it is. And they're like, oh, yeah. And it's actually amazing because I've got a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and a two-year-old. And when you say, oh, remember, we were going to go to Disneyland in a few months? And they were like, oh, right. And they actually will bolt back to that toilet aisle and put that thing back because they would way rather go to Disneyland. <laughs> and I don't have fights with my children in the store ever. You know, so just a couple ways that we can tweak our language and how we communicate with our children can have all the difference in the world. That's great. Great advice. Thank you. Well, we want to talk a little bit about your passion project. So you are the chief expansionist on the expansion (laughs) project. So tell us about that. Well, that, you know, I kind of gave myself that title because I am the CEO, but I thought, I would rather just call myself chief expansion officer. (laughs) Um, So the expansion project, ah, where do I even start? It's um, something that honestly only came to me about end of January. Okay. And it came out of my desire to just be more and do more and feel more. And, um, you know, I, I came to sort of a crossroads because I, I had started doing coaching about two years ago, um, involved with my brokerage business. And I had built this firm up over 10 years and it was going really well. And, you know, then I had sort of my crash down, breakdown moment that I was sharing with you guys at the beginning of our, our time together. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I had been blaming myself and I had put all these ideas in my head about how poor of an advisor I was, um, I just really didn't want to pursue that career anymore. I felt that those who I wanted to serve didn't even want to help themselves. Um, and so I went to this live event that I mentioned earlier. I went to this live event. I met all these really cool women that were like doing huge things, so much bigger than themselves and their businesses. And it was about impact and it was about serving and it was about all these really incredible things. And I thought, I want to do that. I don't want to, I don't want to slave away. I don't want to hustle anymore. I'm tired of trying to fix people's financial situations who don't even want to fix it themselves. You know, and it's, it's a stressful environment to be in all the time when you're trying to help people that don't want to help themselves, right? Mm-hmm. And my husband said to me, "Hun, you can't push a rope. And I never understood what he meant by that until this moment. <laughs> and so I, they, they had done this courage exercise and it was, um, we, they, she um, wanted us to write on a card, what do we think courage is? And just, it just came right out of me. It was like automatic writing. I wrote courage is living by faith and not by sight. And it was funny because part of the presentation was to walk on stage and present your card and it was all being filmed. They were making a film reel. And I I got down off the stage after reading my card and I kind of looked at it and I was like, that's true. That is what courage is. But I'm not doing that. Because I, I am not willing to act based on the factors unknown. You know, I wasn't in that space. And this entire event was about stepping into that courage and doing something big. And, and so I was very inspired by that exercise. And so I came home and I was like, okay, I'm going to figure this out. I literally journaled for weeks and weeks and I wanted to create something that would tap into my bliss because I had hired a business coach in January and the coach had asked me, you know, I know you work really hard that you're passionate about your career. Um, but I feel that you're not happy. And I said, well, how can I be happy when nobody wants what I have? Mm. I seem to be more passionate about it than they are. And he said, well, stop doing that. (laughs) And I'm like, well, how, you know? And he said, you need to pursue what, what your bliss is. And the bliss, your bliss would be defined as the thing that you love to do so freaking much that you would pay money and like good money to do it. And I thought, well, for me, that's travel. You know, I, I would pay large sums of money if I could just travel all the time. I just, I don't have the money, right? So he was like, well, how could you do that, doing what you love most in your career? Like, take out all the favorite pieces of your current career. What would it look like if you could combine that with travel? And I was like, oh, my goodness, you know? And so, again, another few weeks of journaling and talking to mentors and just really hashing this out. And I decided that I wanted to take all the coaching aspects of my business that I love so much. I love 
watching people's faces change when they realize something. You know, when I've just said something that was just the right thing that helped them reframe like decades old limiting beliefs and their, their, their faces light up and it's, it's so incredible to watch and be a part of. I wanted to do that and travel. So I came up with the expansion project and I decided to do a retreat in the Cayman Islands because I had a contact and a friend that lived there and it would be fairly easy to somewhat organize and, you know, being remote and everything. I put the whole thing together and planned the whole deal. I opened up calls to have co-facilitators and it just took off like lightning. It was amazing. Online, this thing just became its own entity. It just started to grow on its own and people were sharing it and the videos were going viral and it was like, what is this? Um, for whatever reason, I had touched on a really sensitive note. You know, people are tired of working the nine to five. They, this is something that's not new. You know, people have been talking about it, especially the millennial generation. Nobody wants to work for anybody anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, my demographic is, um, you know, sort of the 35 to 50 year old that's just done with living for somebody else and they're ready to live for themselves. And that's what this is all about. And it became something that was so big and it just started to move on its own that instead of doing one retreat, we're actually planning five right now. Wow. Yeah. So exciting. (laughs) Well, congratulations. And, you know, I think just that for our listeners, that's such an inspiration to think about, well, they know what to think about. I mean, there's just a lot in there about your passion and and your skill set. And when you really start to think about how you can bring those things together and have an impact in the world it's like things start to happen yeah how they can find their bliss takes courage to make a shift right it does yeah and again at the root of all of that is because we care way too much about what everybody thinks and feels about what we're up to and when we can let all of that go and shove that pride you know where it needs to go and just do something for us I'm telling you, the world just opens up for you, and it's really an incredible experience, and I want it for everybody. Oh, well, that that's amazing, and that's a great note to uh, end on. And you can't see our faces, but I've <laughs> certainly had a few aha uh-huh Oh, for sure. For us to think about, and we are very sure lots for our listeners to think about. So they can get hold of you through ashleyahern.com. I'm just going to spell it A-S-H-L-E-I-G-H. Ahern, A-H-E-R-N.com. What about Facebook or Twitter, Insta? Are you on those? Oh, absolutely. I usually go by Ash because yep. people have a really difficult time spelling Ashley. Um, and no one calls me Ashley anyway, but um, I can be found on Instagram and Facebook, just Ash Ahern. And then um, um, my Facebook group, we're called The Expansionists, and really, we're a really cool community of people who are just ready to ditch the that pride issue and just move on and do something for ourselves. So it's a kind of unique community in there. The Expansion Project is probably where you get the most updates about what we're up to, um, and we're on Instagram and online at theexpansionproject.ca. That's great. You're such an inspiration, I think, to a lot of people out there and given lots of hints and tips today. So on behalf of Sandy and I, thank you very much. And thank you for being so open. Thank you again so much. I was honestly so honored to be asked, and I think this was like a lot of fun. So thanks again. Thank you. Hi, Life Reframers. Did you enjoy our episode today? If so, please leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. Also, check us out on all our social media avenues via reframeyourlife.ca.